0: The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by By you. So
1: please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to to support support the show. But for now, welcome welcome to to The Legendarium.
0: The The little blurb about it, that should be yours for the Lord of the Rings. Wrote dope (laughs) sh*t. Craig, (laughs) Legendarium. Barnes & Noble, new copy Paperback. Wait till book five, right?
1: Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium podcast. This is episode 277, and uh, this is our Lord of the Rings episode number five. So we're talking about the Lord of the Rings book five, and I'll get to my masterfully constructed um, recap In a little while. But uh, first, we'll go over a few other things. First of all, I'm your host, Craig Hanks. And, well, on the other side of the internet, if she tried to disguise herself and ride with the Rohirrim, she'd be found out really easily. Because she'd just keep hitting on all the bearded horsey guys. It's Megan Smythe.
2: Hey, I'm curvy and I like it.
1: Oh, okay. In In high school, he had to deal with rumors that he was just like the Witch King. He rides a thick beast and his blade is always flaming. It's Ryan Bruckman.
0: There wasn't a lot of talk about my blade in high school.
1: <laughs> I suppose that's true. Or that is uh, 100% accurate. <laughs> 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 All right. So today, Lord of the Rings, book five. So this is the start of the Return of the King. This is the exciting war chapters. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to get to that. I'll just remind everybody, Patreon.com slash Legendarium is where you can support the show if you like what we do. I have to say, actually... I. Okay, that line is kind of rote by now, but I will pause for a moment on Patreon and just say, with all this, uh, you know, COVID-19 stuff and everything that's going on right now, like I am shocked and amazed at the support that we continue to have on Patreon, and I I sincerely want to just stop and thank everybody for that. But please don't feel (laughs) like you need to keep doing that. We appreciate the support if you can give it, but if it's straining your budget at all, please, please don't do it. Um... Anyway, but uh, let's see. Anything else, go to TheLegendarianPodcast.com to check out past episodes uh, by subject and visit us on Discord and Reddit and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and probably some other places I'm forgetting. Do you remember Imsi, Ryan? That was a whole thing. Yes, I do remember (laughs) Imsi. Yeah, don't try to look it up. It doesn't exist anymore. Okay, so... What do you think guys? Should we get to Lord of the Rings book 5?
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Let's do this. All right, so here is my amazing recap. Pippin and Gandalf arrive in the Great White City and the hobbits enter and the hobbit enters into the Steward's service. Now they prep for war, and more's the pity cuz Sauron's forces have even Gandalf feeling nervous. Merry pledges his sword to Rohan's lord and Aragorn preps for the Paths of the Dead. And while the Rohirrim are mustered and saddled for war, Strider takes the Corsair's ships and Pelargir runs red. Sauron's blow finally falls and Faramir seems slain, but he isn't, though Denethor still falls to despair. Yet it seems the Great Steward is utterly insane, which sucks because Rohan and Aragorn are very nearly there. They arrive and the desperate battle is turned with the Witch King falling to Eowyn's sword. So while Minas Tirith was very nearly burned, the good guys saved it with their own horse-led horde. And now some more chapters with talking for days, all to prepare for one final brawl. They head to the Black Gate to distract Sauron's gaze. It's the last, final hope for the hobbits, brave and small. So there we are, book five, uh, and that's that's pretty much everything that happened. I mean, this is a it's a slow section with a few things, um, but uh, you know, it's it's very it's very easygoing. Book five of the Lord of the Rings,
0: right? Kind of weird to say that about the largest battle in. You know Middle Earth since the last time
1: they fought Sauron. <laughs> There's a slow section. That's I'm I'm kidding. That was a joke. Um,
2: I I don't know. I kind of got stuck when Aragorn goes back to Edoras and starts talking to Eowyn. and the language gets super flowery. And like I'm just I'm listening to Aowen talk, and I'm like, you you have the most obnoxious vocabulary. It's like Who she's
1: Aowen
2: like she's all Shakespearean. All of a sudden, I just felt like. All of a sudden I was I was trying to drag my feet through that section because it was just <laughs> so flowery. And I, I have a note where I'm like, it's all so flowery, and yet none of their songs rhyme. Rohan songs don't rhyme.
1: Um I didn't know that was weird. They're right. more into what? beat, like you know, the beat jazz and <laughs>
0: like they're that. slam
1: poets. Slam um, poets, Megan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it.
1: Uh, uh go no. Um, so oh. all right, hang on. <clears throat> I'm putting on my elbow patches. Okay. So Uh, The Rohirrim are based on the uh, Anglo-Saxons of Old England, right? So we're talking 7th, 8th, 9th century England. And their poetry, if you go and read Old English poetry, it is not rhyming poetry. Um, All right. So, yeah, they... uh, Hang on just a sec. What's the word I'm looking for? Um,
2: Convoluted.
1: No, when words start with the same um, alliteration, phoneme. Yeah, alliteration. Thank you. It's not. It's not rhyming poetry. It's alliterative verse. Oh, there you go. So if you. So if you go and, and read old English poetry or uh, Roheric stuff, then you're more likely to find alliterative verse than you are rhyming stuff. So. I
2: totally didn't notice that.
1: There I'm you going go. Going back
2: to read it right now.
1: Well, right, tell me if you find anything good. Uh, so I get what you mean with Eowyn being kind of uh, a little bit much, but I think it really fits with her character because she wants so badly to be, uh, to, to hang with these epic people. That she's surrounded with the Aragorns and the Gandalfs and the whoever else like she wants to she wants to be a lauded hero like they are. Um, And so it might make sense to me if she's kind of overcompensating a little bit in her language by by entering that heroic mode. She's Uh, pulling a uh, Mulan
0: where, you know, that first scene where she walks into the camp and like (laughs) smacking guys on the butt.
2: I see you have a sword.
0: I have one, too. Yes. (laughs) Only with Shakespearean
1: and flowery language.
2: Sure. All right. That makes sense.
1: I, You know, and that's, who knows? Maybe you can decide if you want that uh, you just didn't like the way that Tolkien wrote her. That's just one possible in-world explanation, right? Well,
2: and I've never really noticed it except for that section where she's trying to convince Aragorn not to go to find the shadows of the dead. And all of a sudden I, and part of my problem was that I was reading these chapters late at night. And I get tired and all of a sudden I'm like, wait, I wasn't paying attention to what that just said. Cause it was so like, I, I'm coming out of the section with Sam and Frodo where they're all so plain speaking. And then you all yeah. of a sudden get to Rohan and they're very, very grand. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a change.
1: Um, how, I, we're still pretty early in the episode. So do I dare really bring out the elbow patches and get into some of this stuff? By all uh, means, this is,
0: we're well past midterms here. Let's go, go, <laughs> professor. If You
2: feel this is the correct time? I will support you.
1: Um, no, I well, it. I feel like it is because you're bringing up something that I actually wrote a whole paper on in college. So I had notes and everything ready to go, and that's word order in uh, in the Lord of the Rings and. It's very important to pay attention. Well, it's very very important if you care to analyze the way Tolkien was writing. It's very important to pay attention to the way that he wrote certain characters, Eowyn being one of them. Um, And you brought up the juxtaposition between that stuff and Frodo and Sam. Mm -hmm. And the way that they would talk to each other. And that there's not a mistake there. This is you know obviously he did this on purpose the guy spent 20 years writing a book and he you know i bet you'd be hard pressed to find a comma that was there on accident you know mm-hmm. so the way that he wrote the hobbits was very accessible and very uh normal the way that you and i would speak and the way that he wrote the other grander characters was a little different you know and it's interesting to see the way that they interact with each other. And so when I was writing this uh, this paper on word order in Tolkien, uh, what I stumbled across was the way that the hobbits themselves would change their word order to fit in with certain situations. So oh, yeah. when, they're talking, when they're talking to each other or they are trying to give off that uh, folksy backwater vibe... Uh, with whatever, you know, when, when Pippin's hanging out with, uh, is it Baragond? I can't remember his name. Anyway, um, they they are relentless in their normalcy. And that is uh, evidenced by the subject, verb, object form of their sentence. So subject, verb, object, meaning I threw the ball, right? I'm the subject, Through is the verb, and the ball is the object, right? So if you want to change that into um a a more archaic and kind of highfalutin form then you do object subject verb the ball i threw it. yeah you yoda it exactly yeah you yoda it so there's a, a section that i stumbled across uh when pippin is talking to denethor he He comes into the room, he sees, you know, he's in this grand hall, he's got Denethor, this great lord, and Gandalf is at his shoulder, and Pippin is pretty intimidated, right? And he pledges his fealty to Denethor, pledges his sword to him. And what he says is, little service, no doubt, will so great a lord of men think to find in a hobbit. And the sentence goes on. It's a, it's a long, convoluted sentence. But um, if we take just that little bit right there, if he were saying something like that to his hobbit buddies, he would say, uh, such a great lord of men will think to find little service in a hobbit, no doubt. So you've got subject, verb, object, prepositional phrase, mm-hmm. adverbial phrase, but that doesn't matter. What, what matters is he changes that word order. So now he says, little service, and that's your object. Little service, no doubt, will, there's the beginning of your <laughs> verb phrase, will so great a lord of men think to find in a hobbit. Holy smokes. Yeah. Diagramming that thing is a miniature nightmare. And what it does is it serves to, you know, make him sound more grand and archaic and heroic and all of the, the things that you're talking about. Uh, and so you, if you pay attention to that, the hobbits especially as they change their mode of speaking, you can see, you know, who they're talking to and what they're trying to, um, what they're trying to convey to the person who's listening to them.
2: Which does elevate the hobbits a little bit there, because we talk about, you know, Merry and Pippin are just kind of bumbling along, or at least they seem to be at the beginning, but they adapt really quickly, um, and they they're smarter than they're generally given credit for being so young, and not having grown up in grand circumstances. Um, I also quite enjoyed the difference between the pledge that Pippin makes to Denethor, which Denethor gives to Pippin to say, because he has a very prescribed way of mm-hmm. this is how you play your troth. I can't think of the words. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, this I this is how troth you unto you
2: something <laughs> like that. But then you uh, you look at the way Pippin Pippin to Theoden.
1: You mean Mary to Theoden.
2: Thank you. I'm like, I, I, something is wrong in there. And also I couldn't finish the sentence. <laughs> but the the way, um, you know, Mary just basically gives him his sword and says, I would like to serve you. And Theoden goes, great. Okay. And that's about all they have to do. Like it isn't as formal, but it's still very much a very important moment in Mary's life.
1: Yeah. yeah. Which I
2: think is cool.
1: Ryan, we've kept you pretty quiet.
0: Sorry. How you feeling? you doing all right? I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I, I spent a lot of time in the darkness uh, in this read, focusing on the darkness. What oh, do you no.
1: mean?
0: Actually, um, I wish I could remember where I, where I was looking at or whatever, but it was pointed out um, that this section actually uh, highlights really well, uh, visually, the effect of darkness on people mm-hmm. and on different things, because you literally have the encroaching darkness that has in the, up to this point been visible at different moments, literally now expanding out to the point where every one of your point of view characters can see darkness uh, coming from Mordor. Basically, both of our you know, uh, hobbits on either side, they're seeing this. And it got me thinking a lot um, about the effect of darkness on... The realms that we're in and then kind of personalizing that into us so looking at uh the 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 previous places of good that we have visited in here now the shire rivendell lothlorien um, kind of being the key three um now we have minas tirith here that uh, are these supposedly these uh great uh, markings of good in the world uh yeah and as the darkness has has encroached and, and finally grown um i think it's when Uh, I think it's when Gandalf and Pippin.
1: Right. You guys are really struggling with your Hobbit names today. I am. I am.
0: am. Yes. Like this is supposed to be the shining white beacon of a city, but you can tell, but it's starting to look kind of run down. Right. You're starting to see the effect of the darkness. And this is right at the front edge. Well, and you look at the rest of the world, we've already talked about this a bit about, I think like when we talked through Fangorn forest or things like this, or, um, you know the, the darkness has been slowly kind of invading its way in here, and to me, especially in Minas Tirith, it was really interesting as we got to know Denethor and the steward, uh, as the steward, to think of him just kind of letting Gondor go, if that makes sense. He's just right fall apart yep. under his watch, and it, it kind of brought to my mind the saying, the saying of, uh, "Evil succeeds when good men do nothing." type things like could Minas Tirith have been in a better condition if Denethor was a more loyal steward, except he has been corrupted by a, an inner darkness here. So there's just this this whole theme of the dark of Mordor really stood out to me on this, this time through, and became very, very apparent as we literally come to the battle of light versus
1: dark. Yeah, Denethor is a very interesting character to me. I mean, I, I'd be... Interested to hear what you guys think of him, kind of generally, Megan. What are your thoughts on Denethor book version? Do you um, do you get do you have any solid impressions of him as you read? Like what kind of person he is?
2: Denethor, I just get the sense of how bitter he is. That he just feels like everything is going wrong, and the one son that he loved is gone, and the other son is still there and keeps disappointing him. And I just I, I just keep getting the sense that Denethor has given up, really. Just this. And he even at, you know, in the midst of the battle, Minas Tirith is under siege and Denethor just says, I don't care. You guys just do what you want. Follow Gandalf. I don't care. I'm just going to be here.
0: It would be better um, that you all just burned in the fires.
2: Yeah. Because he he's seen he's looked in the palantir he's seen what the dark lord wanted him to see and it you know just utterly he's just in despair like i
1: had a thought Well, yeah and i think we should talk about well no let's talk about despair and then we'll get to my my thought uh, in a moment but yeah denethor is so he's overtaken when we meet him by grief right he has learned about boromir's death and he's grieving that, and then eventually, you know, he he treats Faramir like garbage, and we hate him for that. Uh, and then when Faramir is wounded, and he thinks uh, Denethor thinks he's going to die, uh, he's he's already grieving the death of Faramir before it even happens. He's kind of, uh, you know, a, a grief-stricken man. But then he it, it he or it, it goes over the edge of grief into despair. When he looks into the Palantir, and like you said, Megan, he sees what the Dark Lord wants him to see. Oh, look, we've got, uh, you know, Frodo captured in the tower. And, you know, Denethor's been kind of keeping an eye on things, and he knows what this means. The enemy has found the ring, and all is lost, and, you know, what, what even matters anymore? Let's all just burn. Um, And I know, Ryan, you and I talked about this on our last read through, and I'm trying not to repeat too much of what we said in that. But I do think this is a really, really important point when you want to understand a few of the things that Tolkien was trying to say in these books. And even if he wasn't, I don't know if he was trying to, quote unquote, teach a lesson or if this was just his Catholicism creeping in as it tends to do into everything that he does. Um, but despair is the ultimate sin because essentially you are saying that I know what's going to happen and even God can't save me or can't save this situation. And so for a Catholic, uh, this idea of despair, or you know for Christians in general, I'm sure, but uh, for a Catholic especially, uh, they talk about despair a lot and uh, and the hope that you have in, God, right? And so for Denethor to to go to this place of despair is uh, a horrible mortal sin for him. Um, And so Tolkien is is using him to illustrate that. So Denethor thinks he knows. In his pride, he thinks he knows exactly what's going on. But in reality, he's a far weaker man than he thought and uh, far less (laughs) educated man than he thought and so informed maybe is the better word and so that despair is uh, is a terrible a horrible thing for him to fall into um anyway the thought that i had and i want to run this by you guys is i'm curious do we think if we look back on boromir's character from book two is Denethor the uh like the destiny of Boromir had Boromir survived and inherited the stewardship of Gondor is this how he would have turned out uh because when i when i see and what made me think of this and i'll let you answer think about it for a second when we see Denethor in a few situations like he he throws back his robe at one point and he's got on all of his armor and his mail and he's got his huge sword and he is, you know, dressed for battle. And he's like, I've been sleeping like this for weeks. Bring it on. And you get these flashes like that or when he says, uh, you know, everything I do, I do for the good of Gondor. And of course, we know that's not true, but he may believe it. He may believe he's doing things for the good of Gondor. And that, so it kind of echoes some of the things that Boromir said. He was eager to rush into battle. He was, he always had the good of Gondor at the foremost of his thoughts. Um, But as we know, you, you know, he was tempted and overcome by the ring. So is he future Boromir?
0: I would say that that's, you could make that argument pretty easily. Um, because yes, looking at Boromir back in his original, like you talked about those characteristics of rushing into battle, carrying the horn, wanting the best of Gondor. His his words back in Rivendell about you know wanting the the ring. You know this is you know right now I'm I'm only running through Sean Bean's lines in my head. <laughs> <laughs> good enough, good enough. But his talk there is very similar to. Uh, Denethor, if you put Boromir in the same situation Denethor is in right now, facing this this potential annihilation here, and um, being the one who's in one hundred percent in charge, I think if Boromir was in Denethor's shoes, you'd probably see a lot of this. The one thing that might be different uh, would be I, Boromir might be more inclined to to finish out the fight, uh, knowing because that's what he does when he tries to kind of atone for his moment uh, with the ring Right, Um, I would see Boromir putting his people and saying we're we're going to die but we're going to make it quite the battle and we're going to take as many of them with us as we can
1: versus Denethor who's like sorry guys burn see you all right yeah that's a good point that's a good point Um, when I was thinking of this oh shoot the thought just fled my mind it must not have been very important (laughs) (laughs) i don't
2: know for you right now
1: oh no it's fine i think this happened to me in the last episode too i don't care um (laughs) yeah i my brain doesn't work quite the way it used to um no oh that's what it was (laughs) (laughs) haha it had to do with age (laughs) 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 um i wonder if the the one difference that i see is that when when denethor says something about the king returning uh, in fact, there's a great line in the movie that they that they give Denethor, and that's when he says, the rule of Gondor is mine and no others. But in the book, that line continues, and he says, the rule of Gondor is mine and no other, un- uh, unless the High King should return. You know, and of course, Gandalf's eyebrow raises, and he's like, well, <laughs> whatever. And it goes on. But he kind of says that sarcastically. Like, it, you know, it's been... A thousand years. The guy's not coming back. This is, you know, this is my city. This is my rule. And so when he says, "Unless the High King comes back," it's, it's almost, you know, it's sarcastic. I don't. That's not going to happen. But Boromir, on the other hand, the stairs. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But when Boromir is confronted with uh, the suggestion that Aragorn is the heir of Isildur, um, he he comes to accept that in a way that i don't think denethor would have been able to do and so and so i wondered if that was just a product of age if denethor is just a crusty old man and boromir would have eventually been a crusty old man and uh, not been able to accept it so anyway uh there you go i remember remembered what i was gonna say it happens sometimes i think
0: we can do one more comparison at least with denethor and another character in this story theoden well, okay, two more. Oh, okay, <laughs> actually, that is they're both ones I want to get into. Mm-hmm. One is the uh, the way that Theoden was overtaken when we first found him and how he came out of it versus Denethor, how he is kind of the comparisons there. But the one I was thinking of is when Denethor looks into the pal- to the palantir versus when Aragorn mm. does it. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, because Aragorn actually turns the palantir to him. And gets it to submit to his will because he's that's you know he's that big of a badass um, to be able to kind of twist what Sar take what Sarlen's done and push it away and take control of it and declare himself to the enemy. Yeah, that I am the heir. I'm here. So, which is honestly like I think if you don't if if you haven't if you only read this one time you might miss it. But this move that that move that aragorn makes is what eventually wins them the war Mm -hmm. because it forces everything to happen immediately yep and it's like oh oh yeah if if sauron had just waited for a little while longer totally could have just gone across the board with everybody turned in his cards ran over there with you know 40 40 guys and and gone so
1: it's really interesting because we talk about i remember in the wheel of time we used to talk in those discussions about information and uh, and communication. Uh, you know, if only these characters would communicate, then this story would be over. Uh, and similarly in this, it's like, you know, if you know what's going to happen, then you have all the cards. If you have the information, then you are going to win the war. But... It's like every character thinks who thinks they know what's going to happen or what is happening turns out to be wrong. It's, and there, uh
2: yeah, I was going to say there's also a lot of misdirection. I I think it's interesting the way the story is written where uh it's halfway through, you know, Rohan is like a day away from Minas Tirith from the fields of Pelennor and they realize, they find the messenger from Gondor and the red arrow and realize that Gondor has no idea that they're coming. Um, yeah. When we know that they're coming, and we already know that Gondor thinks they aren't coming. Um, and similar, uh, maybe I don't want to say this because it's kind of a spoiler, but similarly, um, when they get to the Black Gate and the mouth of Sauron brings out, oh, hey, here is Sam's sword and here is this
1: Frodo's Mithril coat. Yeah. Yes,
2: thank you. And then here's the, uh, the hood with the brooch. Um, we at this point don't know what that means. Because we know the last we heard from Sam and Frodo, like Frodo was out of commission, but Sam was still good to go. And so we're not quite sure what that all means there. Um, so I kind of think that that misdirection is really fun. I will say though, the Aragorn, I think it's interesting what Aragorn is able to accomplish in this section through sheer force of will. And, dare I say, awesomeness. Because he, <laughs> he shuts down the of Sauron, like, full-on, where the of Sauron's like, oh, who's this guy? He thinks he's so cool. And then basically loses a staring contest to Aragorn and is like, okay, I want to talk to someone else now. You know, just, yeah, Aragorn. I don't that know why, Megan,
0: thing. but... Right now, I have the visual of the mouth of Sauron from Peter Jackson's version
1: with the voice you just did. <laughs> well, look who's Mr.
2: <laughs> oh, no. Uh,
1: it works for me. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of piggyback on something you said, Megan. It's with the, uh, the writing that Tolkien is doing. And we talked about this uh, the last time or two about the leapfrogging narrative and the interlacing narrative. It's all very effectively done. Um, But I wanted to point out if I can find it again here. Um, Okay, here we go. So the, if I can just point out what a skillful writer Tolkien is, some of the best writing, and I think actually somebody on discord pointed this out. Some of the best writing in the book, in all of Tolkiendom, in all of fantasy literature is found in book five of the Lord of the Rings. It's, Uh, It's amazing stuff, but I wanted to just go to the first paragraph or so. Yeah, just the first paragraph of chapter one. And there's two things about it that I find really, really effective. And this first part is just, this is just phenomenal prose. It says, Pippin looked out from the shelter of Gandalf's cloak. He wondered if he was awake or still sleeping, still in the swift moving dream in which he had been wrapped so long since the great ride began. The dark world was rushing by and the wind sang loudly in his ears. He could see nothing but the wheeling stars and away to his right, vast shadows against the sky where the mountains of the south marched past. Like that's that's really good description. It's fantastic prose. Um, And he also pairs it in a a few moments with um, the wind. The wind is singing in his ears as he's kind of like huddled up against Gandalf and sleeping in the saddle a little bit. Um, and then he is reminded of having looked in the stone and confronted Sauron. And it says, and with that hideous memory, he woke fully and shivered, and the noise of the wind became filled with menacing voices. Really great. Like, that's just a, a couple paragraphs later. It's really great um, a pairing of those two ideas. But then the other thing I wanted to mention is at the end of that first paragraph, uh, Pippin, so it's, uh, in, in Pippin's mind, he says, sleepily, he tried to reckon the times and stages of their journey, but his memory was drowsy and uncertain. And it's perfect because this is Tolkien saying, okay, look, I know you just got a couple hundred pages of Frodo and Sam. And so you're probably a little hazy on what exactly was happening with Pippin and Gandalf and the rest of that crew. And so I'm going to give you just a little bit of uh, of a refresher But he does it as though Pippin is the one who needs it. And so Pippin is kind of working his way through. Okay, yeah, this happened. And then, okay, so here I am. Oh, right, the stone. Oh, crap, the stone. Oh, I'm, you know, now I'm scared again. Uh, It's really just like Tolkien's putting on a clinic in how to reintroduce a reader to uh, a narrative flow. And And
2: yeah, it's one of the reasons why I'm glad that he wrote these the way that he did where he has these huge sections of you know Sam and Frodo and Gollum and then huge sections of everybody else uh instead of interweaving all of them because it just I don't know because of things like you just said where it's just an opportunity to really get in the mind of each of the characters and understand their point of view a little bit more
1: yeah and you know we get a million examples now of the other way of constructing a story. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I I like plenty of stories with the other type of uh, interlacing narrative, but, um, but I think this is just as effective just in very different ways. I don't know. Um, all right, Ryan, do you have anything you want to go over before I pop into discord?
0: Um, just briefly, I was, uh, one of the other points I have written down here is, um, this is me trying to book report a little bit. Um, Okay. Prove that you read it, Ryan, prove it. (laughs) Actually, it's not this. It's uh, not the book specifically, but we've talked about the, the time in which this was written um, and Tolkien's express gift for being able to write war Hmm. from personal experience and from what's going on around there. Um, There's a very common thing in literature right now, um, a, Uh, a cinematic styling. And I think someone on discord actually did mention this um, about uh, how more modern fantasy is written in a cinematic styling versus the way that he writes it to be um, a little bit more open. You know, he, you don't get, you know, sentences like, and Gimli stood over the half hewn orc with viscera dripping from his ax. Like you don't (laughs) get those moments, Uh, but he still does an incredible job of conveying the weight of what is occurring And the horrors of what is occurring without necessarily giving you the drip-by-drip bloody details of every moment. Um, And the key moment in the Siege of uh, Gondor that I was thinking of is the Flaming Heads. Oh, yeah. Based on everything we've read up to this moment, if I was going through for the first time and didn't have a past history of reading fantasy literature, that moment would shock me. It would catch me off guard and go, wait a minute, we haven't been reading about flaming heads or things like none of this has happened until now. And I feel like for this moment, that as we approach this wartime sequence, that he wanted to just push a little bit further the envelope to say, this is scary. This is horrific. This is not a pretty thing. This isn't something our heroes are going to lightly face. And so here's a little bit of a shock value moment. Like,
1: yeah, that that's like you said. If you had no context, and in nineteen in you know in the mid 1950s, people did not have the context for well, flaming heads. And especially so,
2: when you consider that people generally before this, you know, before the First World War, uh, people usually didn't return from battle. Like most people died. And suddenly with the great wars, people were coming back and, you know, soldiers were coming back and they had these kind of images in their head, but everybody else didn't necessarily. And so, yeah, like the shock here and the realization war isn't necessarily all glorious. It's hideous. And these people in this story, um, Tolkien even talks about how, um, you know, every once in a while, somebody would see somebody like the flaming head of somebody that they had known. Um, which is even more horrible. And also it's kind of like the way he writes it, It's it sounds like it's also kind of a moment for them to like say goodbye to that person, which is a really weird moment. Um, but I, I think it's kind of interesting <laughs> yeah, that they comment on that in there. Right. Hard pass. Um, another moment that I thought was really cool in that battle is when um, the Rohirrim start to ride in. And I, I just read this and I'm like, did he, did he, Encounter companies of men who would do this where it says, and then all the host of Rohan burst into song and they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them, and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city.
1: Oh my gosh. It's,
2: like, it's such a weird, horrific moment where you're like.
1: So ah, there's a, I mean the
2: orcs and they're terrible, and we all hate the orcs, and so that makes it a little bit better. And at the same time, it's like that is <laughs> terrifying that that's how these people were approaching this
1: battle oh no 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 that's it's not terrifying that is awesome and wonderful and delightful (laughs) it's Uh, so
2: Rohan. yeah
1: so i'm gonna take a little bit of a detour here to just remind everybody that there is a long-standing tie between fantasy and metal right metal music and uh, you know it's it's well established and it's uh Oftentimes, really lame, but sometimes really glorious uh, and wonderful. And in my mind, book five of the Lord of the Rings is exactly where that, uh, where that tie-in happened, because you have they sang as they slew, yeah. and you have old man, do you not know death when you see it? Die now and curse in vain. And he lifted his sword high and flames ran down the blade, you know, stuff like that. Or when you get to um, the mouth of Sauron and he says, you do not have this. No one does. No one in this rabble have the authority to treat with me. Stuff like that, where the most amazing metal moments of all time happened out of time in Middle Earth. (laughs) <laughs> and that's why that's why we have all this amazing metal music that's based uh, on or inspired by um, fantasy literature. It's thanks to Tolkien writing Dope shit in <laughs> book 5 of The Lord of the Rings. That and should be the
0: uh, jacket cover, you know, uh,
1: the album cover, the jacket art,
0: the the where another author Oh, the blurb, the little blurb about it. That should be yours for the Lord of the Rings. Wrote dope <laughs> shit. Craig, legendarium. Barnes and Noble, new copy, paperback.
1: Get Just wait till book five, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, so let's get to some Discord stuff before I uh, run out of time and completely abandon it. Actually, the first comment that came in was Ashiman, who says, and we've kind of been uh, on this for a few minutes already, says, "Is it just me, or is the Battle of Pelennor Fields still one of the most gripping and tragic battles in fantasy literature?" I think we come back to the tragic part in just a moment. Um, uh, and No No Riri No No Riri Two says, "It's not just you, uh, yeah, it's it's not just any of us." Yeah, that's some great writing. Ashman says the way Tolkien writes the battle has a kind of magic to it, very in keeping with the style of the old epics he was influenced by. Do you guys feel that modern fantasy has lost something with its transition to a more cinematic style of writing action scenes? And someone else points out that, um, well, you know, define cinematic because uh, this this is pretty cinematic depending on, on how you look at it, right? But it's definitely different than what we're used to from, like you said, Ryan, the viscera dripping from the axe of the dwarf and you know he he raised his blade with his left hand parrying the blow and then striking with his right and gouging the eye of his combatants or whatever you know like you're not you're not getting any of that Mm -hmm. how do you prefer one way or the other uh in describing a battle i am
0: just by nature of the time that i'm in i tend to appreciate and have an easier time with the cinematic stylings. You know, that is the more modern style. Yeah. The more modern style. Um, it does. It it can take away from a reader's experience. If you are a reader who likes to create the world and the visuals yourself entirely, you don't want to be told, you know, other than some very basic things, you don't want to be told that. I can see why this would take away. Uh, for me, I don't feel I mean, I, I do do that, um, but I don't feel like an author, a good author takes away uh, a lot in modern literature by giving a more blow-by-blow uh, blow moment uh, in in a battle sequence. So long as it is paired with some sort of thought process or things like that, um, that's why you know I'm going to go to my go-to, the one I'm most familiar with here in Sanderson and some of his writings, there are sequences in his battles where you are dealing with you're you're getting what's happening in the fight but it's a lot about the mental state of the person battling at the time yeah. and for me that that works that is a really usable thing do you have to be that way no this this is a very clear example of a time when you can just kind of focus on you know the the bigger picture the the people battling for honor the people battling for survival um and going in and st- still writing some incredibly great moments, uh, between two characters where it's not about where does the sword land? It's about what are you, what are these two people fighting for and standing for and who's going to come out victorious? For example, the witch King and Aowen type thing, these moments.
1: Yeah. And I want to zero in on that for a moment because the witch King versus Eowyn is, I would say, the exception to what we're talking about here where, you have uh, Théoden, he's riding on um, on his horse that gets shot, and so he falls under the horse, and then the Witch King arrives and has this conversation with Eowyn, uh, and He says, stand aside, and she says no. And then her sword hews through the neck of the great serpent, and then the Witch King stands up, and Mary's blade drives deep into its the back of its knee, and then Eowyn stabs it between the... The crown and the shoulders and you know so you have this very uh in-depth description of what's happening there so he is capable Mm -hmm. of doing that and uh but i I think it makes though i think it makes that moment all the more effective because you have a bigger understanding of what is going on with the battle both tactically and emotionally especially emotional emotionally the way that he wrote the grand um, parts of the battle and then zoomed in on Eowyn and Theoden and Merry. And this is what I think Ashiman must have been talking about when he said uh, that it was epic and tragic, the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, is this mm-hmm. moment with Den- or with uh, Theoden and Eowyn. Um Anyway, if when Tolkien wrote The Silmarillion, he kept writing all of these different... Um, these different battles this uh, throughout history, the history of the first age, there's battle after battle after battle. And he would just kind of say, you know, okay, there's a battle that happened and it was big and here's the side that won. And then he would go on and he'd just be like, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that. And sometimes he did, right? But he always had this idea in his mind that with some of these battles, he would, um, he would flesh them out a little more. And sometimes he did and sometimes he didn't. So as you read the Silmarillion, it's like, it's just the big kind of historical account of, yeah, there's a battle, this side won, and this guy died during the battle. And that's all you get. And that's all you would have gotten in that style with Theoden. is like, yes, and and Theoden fell. Um, and Eowyn was victorious over the Witch King. He's like, oh, what, what? And so I love that. In this case, at least he was able to zoom in on one scene in particular and give us something more blow by blow. Um, And I I think it's more effective for having been surrounded by all the grand stuff. Megan? And
2: It also helps to solidify Eowyn's story where her whole life she has been waiting for a moment like this and she finally gets it. And I appreciate that um, Tolkien let us experience what that was and see That she, everything that she has trained for, everything that she has hoped for, it really does turn the tide and makes a big difference. Um, And so later on, when we see what happens to her later, we know that, like, she at this point realizes, I, you know, I'm not just the girl that sits at home and is taken for granted. I... I really can do big things, and I am. It, instead of her, you know, using extra flowery language because she's trying to fit in, <laughs> she actually is a part of that group. Yeah.
0: And she's Witch successful because is. of because she is who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I really like this sequence um, between Aowen and the and the Witch King, and I feel like it's a little bit Shakespearean and Macbeth moment here, where it's well, there's a you cannot kill this character. Except for this one little loophole, yeah, right, totally. <laughs> a little loophole, and we're going to use that loophole.
1: Uh, okay, so nonoriri, I, I I feel weird saying that name from Discord. I don't know why. I
0: feel awkward having you say it, nonoriri as well.
1: So I I don't know. Is it? Some, do you know what it is? No, no, I don't. I'm oh, just okay. saying
0: it's it's, it's like no no Rai, I heard that a lot growing up, so I'm getting really <laughs> awkward. <laughs>
1: Ah, that's perfect. Oh, okay. No no Rai Rai says <laughs> one of my favorite things about the Lord of the Rings especially compared to many other fantasy novels and series that I've read is that you can really feel the weight of history pressing down all around you as you read it. If that makes sense, that makes sense. Because the weight of history is pressing down on you as you read it, and it's because they talk
2: about it all the time.
1: Oh my gosh! Yeah, I think somebody else, uh, as <laughs> as it went on, mentioned um, about how. Oh yeah, Yob talks. That's I uh, see. I like that one. yabtox talks uh, says Tolkien does a great job of incorporating it into the work the, in ways that affect the story and the characters. It's not just the background that the story is written over. Cause there's the moment when Mary stabs the witch king in the back of the leg. And then we take a break for a paragraph and Tolkien's like, all right, let me tell you why this works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause this sword was made in, in uh, by the men of Westerness in the kingdom of Arnor. And it was laid with these magic spells specifically against their ancient foe, the witch king of Angmar and blah, blah, blah. And in the hands of a lesser writer, It'd be like you did not just take a paragraph out to tell me you no, but when Tolkien does it, because he's in this epic mode with that language that he uh, that that he cultivated by reading and writing so much um, in that epic style from so long ago, it totally works for him. <laughs> he knows how to do it. He knows how to manage that, and yeah, it works for me too, obviously. So yeah, good comment. No, no, rye, rye. <laughs> <laughs> I am hundred percent going to use that. Okay. <clears throat> so le- we've got a few more minutes left, and I do have one other Professor Craig thing. But you know, maybe we have a few other um, quick fire. This is kind of a quick fire Professor Craig thing. Do you guys have any quick fire stuff that you want to go through?
0: It might be quick fire. I don't know. Uh, this section somewhat eluded me the first time, and it still does now. Um, the house is healing. We- no. Oh, okay. All right. I don't believe so. <laughs> it's the uh, return of the Dunedain. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the paths of the dead. Uh, going through that sequence because I, I I understand the 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 oath that was sworn the. Very, um, aslanic table, you know, stone where you know they go they to... Around... You're talking about the stone of Eric, yes, yes. the stone of Eric, Eric's, okay. Eric's stone. Um, I, I get that. I'm curious, the thing that uh, didn't connect with me, I understand all that with the dead, but I don't understand the Duna Dane connection to it. Okay, if what makes sense. What about it?
2: Like, why are the Duna Dane there? Why do
0: they go? They, yes, these guys. Just show up and from, like, I don't know anything. I don't understand these people showing okay.
1: up. Okay, all right. So the Dunedain, the Rangers from the North. These are all that is left of Aragorn's kin. Um, and are they, they are they Numenorean. Yes. Okay. Just making sure. Yep. Okay. And so they have been. These are the these are the people that, and not all of them. I mean, there's like thirty of them there, right? So it's not like all of the Dunedain are there. But, um, these Dunedain, these Rangers in the north, are who Aragorn stationed outside the Shire in Book One. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, we were, we were kind of joking in the Book One section about Gandalf just taking off for 17 years. And he's like, I'll just leave the ring there. It's probably fine. <laughs> well, you know, okay. So you had Rangers patrolling all over the place up there in the former right. Kingdom of Arnor. So that's who they are. And they are, um, Close allies of the house of Elrond. And that's why you have Eladan and Elro here, the two so those, sons, yeah. the two sons of Elrond. And so they're there to lend support to Aragorn and they deliver the banner that Arwen made for him and a message from Elrond. The message being, if you are pressed for time, remember the paths of the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, it's why are they there? They're there, they're there because he's their homeboy, and they're gonna help him out. Um, they also serve narrative function in delivering the message and uh, the the standard that he takes into battle. Um, just so this, I'm,
0: for some reason, I had this in my mind: this the Numenorians as this great, incredible, tall culture. <laughs>
1: <and> <laughs> says the says the five eleven man.
0: Yeah. Not quite. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and it makes sense as rangers, you know, fierce warriors or anything, but I was I was sitting here like, I feel like you have this group of 20, 30 incredible warriors here and you're not using them. Like, they're just kind of following along. And, like, they would be like the captains of other groups. He, like, I don't know. It was just something I'm like, I want more from this group. I don't know what, you, I don't know who you are. I don't know what's going on. And you're supposed to be this incredibly awesome ancient group. But... It's true sure that we
2: never we never really see them in battle. I think it's interesting uh, that in the books, I have like this whole bullet point list of things that I'm like, oh, and they lift this out of the movie and this out of the, and the, part of that is the Dunedain. Um And I, I personally think it's really cool the way it's written in the book where the paths of the dead, really that's just to get them to the ships and then empty out the ships and then everybody else who um supports Gondor can come and congregate on the ships and get to the battle.
0: Yeah. Versus um, crop dusting all the orcs with a green fog at the, yeah. at the
1: end. <laughs> that yeah. is uh th- there are a few moments that I I think from the movies that are kind of an atrocity. And for one thing the the whole king of the dead sequence in the movie is uh really drawn out compared to what we get in the book. Yeah. And it's a little annoying but i'm you know i'm okay to forgive it because it is kind of a fun cool sequence but the problem with it is then it uh it's paid off like you said ryan with the the uh, green gaseous <laughs> mist that you know the the ships fart all over the pelinor fields and uh, the orcs all die and that yeah it feels a little bit cheap because it, like you said they What they do is they scour the southern part of Gondor on their way to Pilargir, and then they take out the Corsairs and empty their ships. And what fills the ships, it's not a bunch of dead people, it's Gondorians. Gondor <laughs> is this huge nation that exists on the south side of the White Mountains. And, uh, you know, all of these farmers with their pitchforks and people who know that it's an emergency um, yeah, are slaves willing that were to, to follow along yeah yeah so they so they're the ones who get on the ships and uh, and ultimately turn the tide of the battle uh, at the pelinor fields anyway
0: kind of reminds me of uh i don't want to spoil anything in another series but an, another king collecting his fallen kingdom going into the last battle <laughs> easy easy i'm just i'm just saying easy all right <laughs> if you've read the series you probably know what I'm talking about. But...
1: I'm, I'm, uh, yeah.
2: I'm pretty sure I know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah. all
2: right. I'll ask you about it later.
1: So I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I, I see what you're saying about wanting more Dunodyne in your life. Um, I could I could go for that. Like I, I'm kind of picturing a 90s sitcom where oh, each of the 30 Dunodyne like turn and look at the camera and smile and yeah. it shows their name in big yellow letters on the bottom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh while this cheesy theme music plays. Like, yeah, I, I could go for a sitcom like that. That's fine. I
2: miss but... the nineties.
1: <laughs> Do you really? Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, here's my here's my quickfire thing. On page 822, Eowyn names the witch king Dwimmerlake. Begone, foul Dwimmerlake or whatever it is. Um and if you don't if you don't care then your eyes glaze over it. And if you don't care and your eyes glazed over it, then just, you know, skip ahead 30 seconds. But the uh, I was intrigued by this word Dwimmerlake. What in the world does that mean? That's got to be Old English. Sure enough, um, Dwemerlake uh, is Old English for magic doer or magician. And so all it is, it's this epithet that's hurled at the witch king, calling him a, magi- a magician, which is... Uh, appropriate considering what we've already talked about in Tolkien's views on magic uh, and the word magic. So, if he's a magic doer, then that is an insult for Tolkien. So, there you go. Dormer Lake, magician. Okay. That was, like, like I it. said, I promised quick fire. Okay. Anybody else quick fire stuff before we wrap this up and call it quits?
2: Uh, during the last episode, I. Me, I pinpointed a section that I just thought was particularly well written, which is Frodo at, I want to say Ethel but he, uh, you know, is on the way to the Black Gate, and he yeah. sees the the fallen head of the, you know, the statue of the head of the fallen king, and it has like the flowers around it, and there's this ray of sunlight, and it gives him this moment of hope, and I think it's very cool that they come back and refer to that again in this section on the way to the Black Gate. Yeah. It says, the hideous orc head that was set upon the carbon figure was cast down and broken in pieces, and the old king's head was raised and set in its place once more, still crowned with white and golden flowers. And men men labored to wash and pare away all the foul scrolls that the orcs had put upon the stone. Um, And once again, that same statue that was such inspiration and gave a moment of hope to Frodo also becomes inspiration for these soldiers and a moment of hope for them as well. And as Ryan mentioned, there's a lot of um, a lot of talk of darkness and what it does to all the people fighting in this battle. And here we have this ray of hope when they're moving into a place of darkness. But again, this same statue offers them some joy
1: and yeah. something yeah. for
2: them to rally around and take care of.
1: I do like the idea of Aragorn the king you know coming back and spreading life and light as he goes. Okay, yep, it's pretty biblical. Yeah. Um uh, but as he goes along, he's able to do that and it reminds me of what our, our image that we have in our head of Mordor is rightly because this is the way Tolkien wrote it. It's this blasted land. Everything is disgusting and slaggy and volcanic and violent and, you know, it's dusty and black and dirty and uh, grimy. Well, if it weren't for the influence of Sauron, is that what Mordor would look like? You think about other regions in the real world where you have a, you know, like a volcanic um area with a large body of water and you do have uh lake nurnan i think it's called in the southern part of mordor and you have all these rivers and you know flowing bodies of water um volcanic ash is uh is known to be a great cultivator right so after after a volcano blows uh, the generation of plants that come afterwards the generation of wildlife is very um uh is very, it grows very effectively in a situation like that. So, if it weren't for Sauron, Mordor would probably be a pretty dope place. And so, we get that little glimpse of Aragorn going by and bringing that life back to East Ithilien, where uh, Sauron's influence has been uh, coming seeping out of Mordor. And so, it's like, okay, so if he can overthrow Sauron and get into Mordor imagine what he could do with a place like that uh, man you know imagine watching Mordor flower that way that would be pretty cool Ryan you're laughing at me why are you laughing
0: I'm not laughing at you I, I had a <laughs> I had a thought that I originally intended to keep to myself I was like you know because you the way you're describing it is if, if you have ever been to Hawaii that's that's kind of yep. imagine Mordor as the tropical islands of Hawaii or you know, just sure. Caribbean islands, but where I was
1: thinking like Oregon, yeah. maybe <laughs>
0: right now. It's more like, you know,
1: I don't know the middle... Salt Lake City.
0: Yeah. You know, Salt Lake City, the northern parts of Australia. <laughs> oh, ouch! Oh,
1: too soon. Oh, yikes. Okay. So moving <laughs> on from that, I think that's where we'd better end it. With All that
0: 2020 is too soon, Megan. Oh,
1: yeah. This, oh. this whole year.
2: Now we have killer hornets. Right.
1: <laughs> all no. right, so, Continue oh, oh, you guys, <laughs> I forgot my last thing. I'll take just one more minute. I forgot to mention what's going on in Tolkien's life right now. Oh. So he would go on these writing blitzes and, uh, he, you know, he wouldn't be able to work on the Lord of the Rings for months at a time. And then he would go back and do revisions or whatever. But in autumn of 1946 is when he wrote almost all of book five for the first time. Um, and he did it in this huge sprint over just a few months um, in 1946. And so what was going on in Tolkien's life in 1946? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So I got nothing for you. He was just hanging out as the Merton chair at Oxford and uh, doing That's his
2: That's why own. he had so. time to write.
1: But so, I did have so a thought. So glad you built that up. I'm so glad that
0: you built up <laughs> that whole thing to lead to. Yeah, he wasn't doing anything. He was writing. He was just...
1: I I did have a thought though. Okay, and I'll try to get this out as quick as I can. And that's um, in in 1946. The war has wrapped up. Okay, so he Tolkien fought in World War One, which was utterly despair-inducing. It was a horrible war, not just its uh, pretext, but also its uh, reality on the ground, just a terrible, terrible situation. It had none of the kind of kinetic um, energy that, uh, that is described in the epic poems that he was used to reading, that kind of romanticization of war uh, just died in World War I because everybody just got stuck in the mud for weeks and months at a time. Um, and then you get to World War II and an even more horrific war in many ways. But you do have something that World War One sometimes missed, and that was the grand um, scale, uh, the the epic scale of battles that you might have read about before. And so I'm thinking specifically of um of something like D-Day and the ensuing weeks and months uh, after that where you had a grand coalition of nations. They come together, this grand alliance, and they all rush the front and push the enemy back. And it's it's if you zoom out and describe World War II, many parts of it anyway, in similar language to what Tolkien was used to using, then you can kind of see um, that difference. And so now we've got, he's already written book four with Frodo and Sam, and they're trudging through... Uh, the the uh, marshes and they're seeing the dead faces in the water and everything is terrible and slow and sloggy and then you get to book 5 and the war is now behind him and he's uh, absorbed the stories and seen what has happened and who knows maybe that had some sort of effect probably not but it's something to at least think about um, there you go so anything else you guys shall we call it good
2: all right
1: you're nodding this is radio you can't nod on the radio all right. it. <laughs> megan yeah. is continuing to nod vigorously
2: I said all right what do you want? all
1: right so thanks everybody for listening again patreon.com legendarium is where you can go support the show again please do so responsibly at this moment in time um, but i definitely encourage you to come visit us at discord You can find the permanent link to that uh, at thelegendarium.reddit.com. And I hope we see you there. We'll certainly see you for book six. All right, bye guys.